All right, well, you guys ready for the word this morning? Hallelujah. Well, let's pray as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. Father, I pray that as we dive into your word this morning, Lord, that you would minister to us, that we would hear your voice. Lord, I pray that your word would accomplish inside of each and every one of us what you intend it to accomplish. Father, that we would grow, that we would mature, and that we would know you more and more every time that we spend time in your word. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, how many of you guys liked last week, which was like a a whole message on giving, essentially, as we went through chapter 8? You guys enjoyed it? That's good, because guess what we're talking about this week? It's a whole other entire chapter on giving. Hallelujah. Now, this isn't me just trying to, to push an agenda of some sort. This was actually God putting it in the book that we're just going through. It must be important that if he wrote about it that much, don't you think? Uh oh. We logged out of my app that we use the. Uh, somebody signed it in my Amazon account, which is where I store all my messages so they're on my Kindle when I preach. I reset the password this morning because it looked like somebody else logged in. The bad part about that is that it logged me on my app and now I don't know where my message is, so hang on. <laughs> I can't do it all from memory. I'm good, but I'm not that good. Hallelujah. There we go. We're back up. Everybody breathe a sigh of relief. Hallelujah. So like I said, we are going to go ahead and uh, go through... What are you guys laughing at? There's lots of pages. <laughs> There's more than three things. That's my intro. I'm trying to keep the intro short so we can jump into it. But apparently, apparently... Monique wants me to just take my time. So you guys ready to be here for a while? We're going to go through it slowly. Hallelujah. <laughs> you know how long I'm up here when I only have a few notes? Imagine if I had a lot. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. You see, you guys distract me. That's why we're here a long time. It's your guys' fault. Hallelujah. And what was I talking about? Giving. So it turns out... Then we got a whole other chapter. Chapter 9 is all about giving as well. Actually, he's going to start the chapter talking about that gift that, he had prom- that the Corinthian church had, had promised the Macedonian churches. And then after that, he's going to talk about the benefits of giving just in general. Because I'm going to know that God loves a cheerful giver. God loves people that give out of the result of, of thanksgiving and love in their heart, the result of a changed heart. A result of what God has done for us causes us to respond in a generous manner. But because I only had three notes on my first page, we're going to dive <laughs> right in. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Second Corinthians, look at this. Two pages just on this scripture, just so you know. We're going to be here a while. Second Corinthians 9, 1 through 2 says, Now it's super, superfluous for me to write. Anybody else always have trouble pronouncing that word? superfluous now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints for i know your readiness of which i boast about you to the people of macedonia saying that Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them so paul begins this with that that funny word superfluous he says it's superfluous for me to write about this ministry of the saints. And the Greek word that is actually translated to superfluous means beyond the regular number or size, out of the common, or out of the common extraordinary or strange. And even the word superfluous in the English, when you, tra- when you get the definition of that, it's, it's more than is wanted or more than is sufficient. Unnecessary 
from being an access, an excess of what is needed. In other words, Paul's saying, it's not really necessary for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. And how many of you are going, well, that's strange, because you just spent an entire chapter talking about the ministry of the saints. And I thought to myself, well, this doesn't make sense. If, if this is superfluous, if this is out of, out of the ordinary, if it's not necessary, what is he talking about? But the truth is, is he's not actually talking about what the Macedonian church did. It makes sense if you realize he's not talking about the Macedonian church's gift in particular, but just about the ministry, this ministry to the saints in general. And the reason why he says that I, I don't have to talk to you about this is because he already did. The, the Macedonian church was something extra. He was just telling, let me tell you about what they did. But the actual ministry, the actual gift, the, the necessary, the, the need for them to gather this gift, Paul had already talked about it. Last week we saw that they already knew and they were ready. You remember he said that they were ready to give. So they already knew. He's not reminding them about this need. This isn't something brand new. Paul isn't saying, hey, I just wanted to, re- to let you know that we're starting a new ministry. We're starting a new collection. This is something they already knew about. That's why it was superfluous. It's because they already knew about this. They were actually excited and eager to be a part of helping out those in need in Jerusalem. But what Paul did need to speak to them about was the fact that they weren't ready. They had said that they were ready to give and they were eager to give, but they never followed through. You see, the Macedonian church, when they heard about this gift to the saints, they responded with readiness, but then they acted on their readiness and they put together a great offering for, the, for those who were in need in Jerusalem, even out of an abundance of poverty. They had nothing and they still pulled together an offering. They were ready to give. But the Corinthian church, they got all excited and never followed through. That's what Paul needs to write. He says, I don't need to tell you about the, the, the ministry to the saints. You already know about that. You were ready. You were excited. But what I, I do need to write you about is this whole idea of you not being ready. So he says, I know of your readiness. And I boasted about this to the people of Macedonia. Paul was so convinced that they would be taking part in, this, in the need of the saints in Jerusalem, that he bragged about them to the Macedonian churches. And as part of his message to them, he says that the, he told them that the people of Achaia, which all this means is the people in the church in Athens, had, they've been ready since last year. He says, I told the Macedonian church, that, man, you guys have been ready since last year. The last time I sent the, the letter instructing you what to do, you guys were excited, you were ready. I told them, and I've been bragging to you to the Macedonian church. And it's interesting because it's this testimony of their readiness, of their eagerness to give to be a part of it, actually helped to stir up the zeal inside of the, of the Macedonian church. It helped encourage the Macedonian church. Did you guys know that when you guys are walking with God, when you guys are, are acting generously, when you guys are being obedient, that you're actually stirring up others in the church? When they see what you're doing, you're being an encouragement to them? When you're serving God in any capacity, know that you are, are being an encouragement to other believers around you. Matter of fact, Hebrews 10, 24 says this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love into good works. We're actually supposed to be stirring one another up. Now, this isn't a competition. It's not about going, man, I want to do more than him. I want to do more than her. 
I want to, because then it becomes an idea about you being put in the limelight, right? It's not a competition, but it's a, it's a gentle encouragement. It's, when, it's an inspiration. When you see others serve, you want to, man, you're like, man, I want to serve God like that. I want to do those things. If you're doing it just to get put up with your name in lights, the Bible says you've already received your reward. But it is true that when we serve, we inspire others to do so. Not in a sense of competition, but just to, it's just encouraging to be serving God together. And that's what we want to do. We want to stir one another up. And that's exactly what Paul was boasting about to the, to the Macedonian church. So these guys are ready. They want to serve. He wasn't trying to make the Macedonian church feel bad. He was trying to encourage them and stir them up to give. And it turns out that the Corinthian church's zeal actually stirred up almost everybody in the Macedonian church. And out of extreme poverty, they put together a gift to be an, to be an offering to, to help those in Jerusalem. And then he continues on in verses 3 through 4. He says, But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. Paul also wanted to write them, not just to remind them of their gift, but he also kind of wanted to give them a heads up of why Titus and these two other brothers, you remember the two brothers that we talked about last week that we don't know their name um, in the, at the end of chapter 8. But Paul wanted to let them know that this is why I'm sending these two brothers, Titus and those guys, um, because their purpose to come was to help the Corinthian church prepare the gift that they had promised, that they were ready and eager to do. They weren't following through, so Paul said, I'm going to send a few guys to help you. And I don't know if it was just to, to, to be a, a cheerleader for them or actually to help um, set up the, the, the actual logistics of what it would take to gather this and get everything ready, but the purpose was is Paul sent them to help them out so that they would be ready for when that Paul came back with probably people from the Macedonian churches and the other churches and those who he had decided they were going to send the, the gift up to Jerusalem, that when they got there, that nobody would be embarrassed. The gift wouldn't be ready. He wanted them to make sure that they had the gift as they said they would. And you'll remember that this whole idea of the gift is not... Paul is always having to defend himself from being domineering with his churches or to being overbearing with his churches, basically to be in some sort of... Uh, 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 what's that government called when you have the just one person in charge? Huh? Dictator, yeah. I don't know why. That, that, that word has been in the news for how long and I can't get it to my head. Anyway, he wasn't trying to be a dictator to these churches and dictate everything they were supposed to do, but he was just reminding them that he had already that, that there was this opportunity. He'd already told them about this opportunity uh, much longer ago. Matter of fact, we, we've heard about it even in that first letter that he wrote. So Paul is just wanting to, to remind them of what they said they were going to do. He's not trying to, to tell them what they have to do, but he wants to help them to be ready. And he's actually sending extra help to plan and arrange to make sure that they are, are, are getting together what they intended to get together. Because Paul doesn't want it to be a last-minute effort. You know, he doesn't want to show up with the, the delegates that are going to send this gift to Jerusalem and they show up and Paul's been bragging about them, talking about how awesome these people are. They love God. They love God's people. They're going to go ahead and have something ready and get there and nothing is ready. Because 
the truth is, is this was actually the instruction that he gave him in that very first letter. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, it says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. This is something that has been in the works for some time. Paul already instructed to, to have it ready before he got there so it doesn't just uh, look like he's showing up and just commanding people to just make money appear out of nowhere. And Paul didn't want to be humiliated by his confidence in them. You know, Paul was proud of this church. He bragged on them. When I, when I read this, I kind of, you talk, you see about all the, the bragging that Paul does on his churches. He's almost like a proud papa with his kids. He's just happy about what they're doing and that they're serving God. You know, this morning, and it's, it's funny because I can write because this morning as we're doing worship and uh, uh, the, the kids are up there singing and there was one point, um, and I think it was in Great Are You, Lord, when Anina just begins to, to to, to sing um, and pray out loud, and it's completely free. It's actually, it was during the verse, but she just begins to pray and, and speak it on the mic, and it actually started to make me choke up because I'm seeing these kids grow in the Lord. And I'm seeing them grow. So I understand what Paul's feeling when he sees, and he's bragging on them, and he's talking them up. You know, and, and, and obviously, like, I'm so proud to see my son up there serving God the way that he's serving. It's like, and that's what Paul is feeling. I think he's a, he's a proud papa seeing his, his, his kids. But he doesn't want to be found out to be a liar. He doesn't want to talk them up. And it turns out it was, it was just all in his head. He doesn't want to be humiliated because he was confident in them. Paul is always, I don't know if you've noticed, but when you read his letters to all of his churches, he's always so confident in his disciples and those in his churches. And I think even worse than Paul being ashamed or being humiliated, that's what he says here. He says that I don't want him to come and find that you're not ready because we would be humiliated. That's Paul talking about himself and his team. And he says to say nothing of you for being so confident. I don't think he wants them to have to go through that shame or embarrassment as well to say they were going to do something and not follow through. So Paul says in verse 9, because of this, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. They had already promised this gift. This isn't something brand new. So that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. So like Paul says, to save everybody the embarrassment of not being ready, Paul and also the church, he sends Titus and the two messengers to help them out. And their, their purpose is just to help them get stuff arranged. Probably to remind them of the promise that they made and to do whatever they need to do so that they're ready before they came. Paul's just getting ahead of the game. He doesn't want to show up unprepared and find them unprepared. So they're going to make sure that the, the Corinthian church is ready before they get there. They're going to help get the gift together because Paul really didn't want them to end up breaking their promise. You know, that's something that I, I do with people all the time is remind them of the things that they said that they're going to do because I don't want them to break their promises or what is either, or to break their word or do what they said they're going to do. I try to remind people ahead of time so they're ready and prepared so that we don't find ourselves looking silly or looking like worse that we were a liar and we didn't do the things that we said that we were going to do. Because here's what's going to happen. 
If Paul shows up with the people from the Macedonian churches and from like the first letter that the, the enclave, the people that they elected to bring the gift, if he shows up and they don't have the gift ready, one of two things are going to happen. They're either not going to collect the gift at all, which is going to make them look like liars. It's probably going to make them feel terrible about themselves and it would make Paul to be a liar as well. Or they would really quickly go ahead and gather the gift together and they would give the impression that this is some sort of a racket, some sort of a scam, that Paul is coming down there and forcing them to do stuff because they would look like they were caught unaware or off guard. And, and Paul has been defending his ministry from being this kind of guy. It's like, we've never made you guys do anything. And even here, Paul isn't making them give this gift. This is something they already promised to do, so he's reminding them to do that. And he doesn't want, to have to, to, he doesn't want it to look like to give the appearance that he's domineering over them and forcing them to do stuff. Because he's already got enough uh, mess with that, defending himself from these people that are coming against him already. He doesn't want to even give the appearance that this is what's going on. You know, it's important that we don't give the appearance that bad stuff or evil is going on in our life. You know, it's, and I think I talked about this last week, but it's why I don't, I don't meet with women alone at all. I've canceled stuff, so that doesn't happen. That's why it blows my mind when, when uh, the vice president, Mike Pence, says he won't meet alone with a woman and, and everybody wants to, uh, uh, to, to, to tease him and, and give him a hard time about that. And, and really, tease is a light word. They, they really drag him to the coals for that. But you know what? No one's ever accused Mike Pence of doing something inappropriate with another woman. He doesn't ever even let the opportunity, the appearance happen. And that's what Paul's worried about here. We don't even want to give the appearance that this is going on. I'm already having to defend that when, when it doesn't even look like that. But if it looked like that, it's going to be even harder to defend. Also, he says if they have to gather it last minute, would it really be a gift or would it be an exaction? Would it be him forcing them to do something? Because here's the thing is, if they had to gather at the last minute at best it would look like that they were giving it begrudgingly. They were giving it because Paul said they had to. He was exacting it from them. At worst, they really would be giving it begrudgingly because they didn't want to give it. And here's the thing, when we give, our intent matters. As we finish the, the rest of this chapter, you're going to see Paul really go into what giving is about, some principles of giving, and one of the things that we're going to learn is our intent matters. And that God doesn't want us to give because we, we have to. He wants us to give because we want to out, an, out of an abundance of joy. The, we're going to find out that God loves a cheerful giver. So he doesn't want it to be an exaction. Because the truth is, is if that's what it becomes, is it really a willing gift anyway? If you're being forced to give, it's not a gift. It's, not, it's not a, uh, certainly not a willing gift. And that's not what God is looking for for many of us. You know, one of the things that, that I always want to make clear when we're doing the offering is that giving is an act of worship. We do it because of what he's done for us. You don't do it because Pastor Wayne says you should give or because you're going to feel guilty or some sense of duty. That's the wrong reason to do it. But instead, we do it out of an abundance of love and joy and for what Christ has done for us. So Paul begins. He says in verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So Paul, over the next few verses, is going to give multiple reasons why Christians 
should actually give. And the first one that he talks about is that when a Christian gives, we actually get something back in return. We actually reap a harvest when we give. So while reminding them of the gift that they had promised, Paul also wants them to remember this principle of sowing and reaping. Just so you guys know, the principle of sowing and reaping is found all throughout the Bible. Matter of fact, it's such a well-known principle in this world that even other religions, other mindsets have picked it. Have you guys ever heard of karma? Yeah, the Bible made that up first. It's the print of God. God's the one that put that in place, sowing and reaping. The reality is, is that whatever we do sow, that we will reap. So he wants them to understand that when they give, they're, they're going to get a return from it. It's not a loss. You know, so many of people think that if they give, they're, 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 they're losing something. But the truth is, is you're not losing anything. You're actually gaining and this idea of sowing and reaping would have been well known in this society because this is an agricultural society. They understand crops and farming and all those things. So they get and understand this idea of sowing and reaping. You plant a single seed into the ground and a plant grows up out of it and that plant produces thousands of seeds often. And it's the exact same type of seed. Have you ever noticed that? If you plant a kernel of corn, anybody ever seen a watermelon plant jump out of that? Or even something stranger, you plant a kernel of corn and a donkey pops out? No, when you plant a kernel of corn, what do you get? More corn. You actually reap what you sow. You don't reap one thing and get something else. And they understood that. And the truth is, is as we think about it, it's really not that difficult for us to understand, at least for most of us, because most of us have seen corn. Like We all get corn. Matter of fact, uh, you go down by, by where I live and Miranda Road exit, they have the, the was it tear in the corn is what it's called? We all see the corn stalks. We understand corn stalks. We understand when you plant a kernel of corn, a stalk grows out. And on that stalk, you're typically going to find two to four ears of corn. And on each of those ears of corn, you're going to find 600 plus uh, kernels on that ear. So when you plant one seed, you're getting back, what is that, at least... 1,200 to 2,400 more seeds. If you guys didn't know, the little kernels on the corn, that's the seed. You can actually take that pot, you can buy a bag of like popping corn, like the, the kind you actually have to do yourself, not the stuff you throw in the microwave. And you can plant those and grow corn. <laughs> those are the seeds. So we get that. But even if you don't get that, if that's still blowing your mind, think about it investing money in the stock market. You put a dollar in and it gets a return. But you have to put something in. You have to sow something in to get anything back. And it's not too difficult to understand that if you plant one seed, you're only going to get so much. Now, there is a return. It is multiplied, right? We talked about with the corn. You plant one seed, you're going to get anywhere from 1,200 to 2,400 back. But if you plant two seeds, you get 24 to 4,800 back. You plant three seeds, you get 4,800 to 9,600 back. That's as far as I'm going in my head. If someone wants to get a calculator out, we can start doing some math. But it starts to multiply really, really fast. Because when you sow, there's always a harvest. I want you to know that whenever you sow, there's always a harvest. And you're always, you can't outgive God. So he wants them to understand that. And here's the thing, when you think about it in this term of a farmer, no farmer 
is upset about having to save some seed back and put it in the ground for next year. No farmer, is up, no farmer considers that a loss because they understand that they have to invest that. They have to re-sow that back in the ground so they can repeat the process next year. And they'll always have an abundance. Now as a side note, this principle of sowing and reaping doesn't just apply to finances. Here Paul is referring to it in a financial or an economic sense. But it doesn't just apply to that. If you sow kindness, you will reap kindness in your life. If you sow love, you'll reap love in your life. If you sow forgiveness, you'll reap forgiveness. And you'll, anybody ever wondered, why doesn't anybody ever forgive me? Well, do you ever forgive anybody else? Because if you sow bitterness, you'll reap bitterness. If you sow unforgiveness in your life, you will reap unforgiveness. If you sow vitriol in your life, you're going to reap the same. This principle of sowing and reaping is so ingrained in our world that it, that it happens no matter how you look at it. If you're getting a lot of something in your life, take a step back and realize, am I sowing this in my life? Maybe take the time to sow kindness, sow forgiveness, sow generosity. Amen? And then he continues on in verse 7. Back to talking about money and giving. He says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So another reason that Christians should give, we've talked about one, because you get a return. Two, we give because God actually loves a cheerful giver. God loves people that give. One who gives out of their 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 own uh, free will, out of, out, of, out of the love that they've had instilled in their heart, they give out of that abundance of love. Now here's the thing about the farmer. For the farmer, motivation doesn't matter at all. If you're a farmer, it doesn't matter why you're farming. You could be doing it for profit. You could be farming out of greed. You could be farming out of a sense of philanthropy. It doesn't matter why you're farming the return is always there. The motivation doesn't matter. You put a seed in the ground, as long as the seed is good and the weather is good, then you're going to get more seeds of the same kind. Motivation doesn't matter one bit. But Paul, just so we don't get in this, this mindset that, that God is some sort, of, uh, uh, some sort of holy stock market or some sort of holy investment machine or slot machine or however you want to look at it, Paul wants to remind them when it comes to God, intent does matter. And that's what we talked about. We want to give not begrudgingly because if you're doing it out of a sense of duty, your intent is wrong. You're missing the entire point. Intent matters. So he says, you know what? Each person must give as he has decided in his heart. And some of you are like, well, that's awesome. I've decided not to give anything. That's what I've decided in my heart. But the problem is, is that's not how it works for a Christian. Because Paul's not talking about operating in selfishness. When we're not generous, when we want to hold everything back on ourselves, when we, when we decide we're not giving anything up, that's selfishness. That's not generosity. That's not acting out of the grace of God in your life. God wants us to give out of the abundance of joy and love in our hearts. 
This whole gift that he's talking about, that's why he refers to the, 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 the idea of the Macedonian church giving, he refers to it as this grace of God. It's something that God enabled them to do. It's something that God gave them the ability to do because generosity is birthed in us out of the great generosity that God showed towards each and every one of us by giving his son freely to us, asking nothing in return. That's where generosity is birthed in each and every one of us. It's a response to that. That's why he calls it the grace of God. Us being able to be generous has nothing to do with ourselves because if we're left to our own devices, we're all selfish. But when God works inside of us, when his grace works inside of us, something changes inside of us. So if you're having trouble giving cheerfully, if you're having trouble giving uh, with this idea of that, that, that you get too worried, are we going to have enough? Are we going to be able to pay the bills? Are we going to be able to pay rent? And if you're really struggling with that, or you're only giving because you feel like you have to, pray to God that he would show you, that he would allow, give you that grace to give cheerfully. Because it is grace. It is a gift of God. Because here's the deal. If you give for any other motivation, you're, you're missing the point. He doesn't want you to give reluctantly. He doesn't want you to give under compulsion or out of a sense of guilt, or a sense of duty, or because somebody said that you must do it. If you're giving for the wrong reasons, the, the question remains, is it even generosity? How many of you give to the government every week? Yeah, that's begrudgingly. I don't do that out of, a, out of, out of generosity. There's no grace of God in that. So nobody would call it generosity, right? I have to give that. That's not being generous. Government's being quite generous for themselves, but I'm not being generous with them. But when we give to the church, to those in need, that's generosity. That's a, the gift of God in us. The truth is, is if, if you're giving because you feel like you have to, or because you feel like that it's your duty to do so as a Christian, or any other reason other than, than a response to God's love, a response and worship to Him, then you're missing the point. I, I wouldn't even do it, because you're missing it. Giving is not about the person receiving. Giving is about you honoring and worshiping God. Amen? And know this, that God loves a cheerful giver. Then in verses 8 through, nine, eight, eight, through nine, 8 through 9, he continues, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. And then a third reason why Christians should give is because God is going to provide everything that you need. God is the one that makes sure that you have everything that you need. Paul says here, God is able to make all grace abound to you. Remember we talked about this word that's translated to grace? It's the Greek word charis. Different meaning. Same word, slightly different meaning. Here. Remember before, it was about God's gift to us as, as, as human generosity. Now, it's actually, we can tell uh, what, it, what it means. because He says, having all sufficiency in all things at all times. He's talking about physical provision. So this grace, making all grace abound to you, is talking about God making sure that you have the, the provision so that you have all sufficiency in all things at all times. 
You can also look at a couple different translations to see how they translate it to kind of see what is being talked about. Because in the ESV, the NASB, which are all word-for-word translations, it's, all, it's almost always translated as, as making all grace abound to you or something very similar to that. It uses the word grace. But if you're ever reading something and you're not quite sure what it's trying to say, one of the things I would encourage you to do is look at other translations. You can go on, on, online on your, on your phone or on your computer and you can find every translation available online. And you can look at the different translations. So to give you an example, the NIV here, instead of saying all grace abound, it says, and God is able to bless you abundantly. And we get to see the meaning of what's being said here. In the uh, New Living Translation, it says, God will generously provide all you need. And if you read the Amplified Bible, which is just like the regular Bible, but only louder, it says, God is able to make all grace, and then in the parentheses it says, every favor and earthly blessing. So he's talking about blessing and provision here. God is able to make all that provision abound in you, available to you. See, that's the thing. If a person wants to give, then regardless of of their circumstances, regardless of what they actually have right now, if they decide in their heart that they want to give, then God will make sure that they have what they need. God is always going to provide. God is always going to make sure that you have what, what, what you need so you can depend on God. That's why the, the Macedonian church was able to give out an abundance of poverty. Do you think any of those, those, those people starved to death after that? No, God took care of them because he always does. And truthfully, an unwillingness to give it all demonstrates a, a lack of belief in God's ability to, to provide for us. A lack of belief that He'll provide everything that we need. Because God is faithful. So know this, God will provide. He says He'll be able to make all the grace abound in you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Here, this all-sufficiency uh, the, the Greek word that's used actually means uh, self-sufficient or content, contentment. It means that, that, that you're, you're, you don't have to rely on other people to make sure that you have what you need. You're, you're self-sufficient is what that word translates there to. It means, it means to be independent because you have enough because God has provided for you. And it also means that you will have enough that you can be content with what, do we just lose another one? Oh, he threw something away. (laughs) My wife's back there. Smoke coming out of her ear. Another one broken. Hallelujah. It's only money. We can buy more. Hallelujah. You know, it also means that that God's going to provide so that we can be content with what we have. What this doesn't mean is that that every Christian is supposed to be rich. For a couple reasons. One, most people, if they became rich, it would just kill them. That's why so many lottery winners end up wrecking their lives. They become addicted to drugs and all other things, and then they're, they're, they're broker than they ever were a couple years after winning the lottery. For most people, being rich is not good for you. That's actually why the Bible said you should be faithful in little so that you can be faithful in a lot. If you can't even pull it off with a little, there's no way you're going to be able to handle a lot. But it means that we will be content, that we will have what we need. And I believe that part of this is... is the realization that, that, uh, that we will have enough, but also God working on us so that we can be content even if we don't have 
what the neighbors have, what the Joneses have. We can still be content in our lives. And the purpose that we'll have sufficiency, that we'll have enough. And actually, it says that, that it's going to abound. Abound means we're going to have a lot. It's an abundance. So that we can be self-sufficient and content in all things at all times so that we can abound in every good work. You know, works won't save you. But as a Christian, we should have good works. The works isn't what makes us saved, but because we're saved, out of that should, we should see good works happening in our lives. We should see changes in our lives. He says that we're going to abound. We're going to have large quantity. You know, my pastor used to always say that if God can get it through you, He can get it to you. You know, when we talk about prospering in the kingdom of heaven, I believe that's what it means. That if you'll be faithful with what God gives you, He'll get you whatever you need to do what you need to have, what, what God wants to have done in your life. He'll make sure that you have enough for every good work. But what this also means is that giving and good works aren't just reserved for times when we're prospering, when we have more than enough. Because we can still do those things even when things from the outside looking in don't look great because God will still provide and make sure that every single need is met. Amen? And then he goes on, as is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. This is actually uh, Paul pointing to the Psalm, uh, Psalm 112. And the he that he's referring to, he has distributed, this he, if you read in verse 1, the psalmist says that this is, this is the, the man who fears the Lord and obeys his commandments. It's talking about someone who loves God and who is going to serve and be obedient to God. This person distributes freely. This person gives to the poor, and as a result, his righteousness endures forever. The, the, the psalmist says that this man who is like that, his righteousness endures forever, and he also refers to him as blessed by God. And Paul is saying that, that just as it is written, if you do these things, that you're going to be blessed forever. Your righteousness is going to endure forever. Because, and, and I think what he's talking about there, because we know how we get righteousness, right? It's not about, we don't get righteousness by giving to the poor. We don't get righteousness by, by distributing freely. We get righteousness by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. But while we're righteous, when we have that changed heart, while we are those things, then naturally we'll want to distribute freely. We'll want to give to the poor. And while those things are still happening, that's evidence of the righteousness that we have. Amen. And then he goes on in verses 10 through 12. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing and many thanks to God. Once again, Paul's reiterating that it's God who provides, right? Who provides the seed to the sower? That's God. And he provides bread for food. That means he's going to provide for all of our needs and for the ability to be generous in other people's life, to sow into others, the seed and our daily needs. And he says, and then he's going to multiply our seed for sowing. Because what happens when you sow? We get a return, right? So when you sow and you get a return, then you have more to be multiplied to sow more, and then you get more, and you get to continue to be a blessing. The, the, the more that you're faithful with what God gives you, the more that it'll multiply, and the more that you're going to be able to give and be a blessing to others and have what you need for good works. And he says it's seed for sowing and an increase the harvest of your righteousness. 
you know, this idea of increasing the harvest of our righteousness. When we're born again, we're made righteous. At that moment, the heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. We're a new person. The old is gone. The new has come. And overflowing from this is the desire to be generous because we're made in God's image. And God is a generous God. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking that that's how we increase the harvest of our righteousness it's because out of our righteousness, we have an overflowing to want to, 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 to be like God, to live out of that joy, out of that love, and we invest in other people's life. But then as I was thinking about it as well, it could also mean that somebody once sowed into your life. They planted a seed into your life. And they had a harvest when you were born again, when you got saved. And then out of that, you begin to pour into other people's lives. Sometimes it's generously giving a gift, and sometimes it's sharing the gospel, which is the greatest gift. And when that person gets saved, and the love of God starts flowing through them, then they do that to others as well. And we get to see this harvest of righteousness, all stemming from a God who provides everything that we need. And then he says that, we will be enriched in how many ways? Every way. That's all the ways. Why? To be generous. We are enriched to be generous. Now this isn't to say that you can't have nice things, you can't have a nice house, that you can't enjoy your life. I believe God wants you to enjoy your life. But He doesn't want you to hoard everything. It's not about just you building up. God doesn't bless you so that, that you can build some sort of fortress and elevate yourself above everybody else. God elevates you so that you can elevate others. He enriches you in every way so that you can be generous in every way. And the great news about this is when we do it, it produces thanksgiving to God. Do you know the whole purpose of all this is to give glory to God? It's not about us. It's about giving God glory for the work that He's doing. Because He's the only one worthy of our praise and adoration. He's the one worthy of this glory. And then He says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing and many thanksgiving to God. This, this is an interesting phrase here. If you go and do some studying on it, Paul is kind of the Greek phrasing in this. He's pulling words from a couple different areas. And one of the words refers to priestly service that he ties and pulls into this Greek phrase. And the idea here is that, that this, this ministry of this service is not only, uh, the implication is it's not only about meeting the needs of people, but it's actually a service to God. It's a priestly service to God when we give and we serve others. And when we do that, one of the side effects is it supplies the needs of the saints. It supplies those who are in need. When you give to the church, it makes sure the lights stay on. You know, there's nothing uh, uh, glorifying of that in and of itself except for when the lights stay on, then we can meet. And God gets glorified when we meet. So there are needs that are met through our giving, whether we're giving to somebody who's hurting, whether we're giving to the church, or any of those ways. When we're being generous, we are supplying into the saints, but also it's overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. That means God is glorified. Those who are receiving those gifts, those who are receiving, those who are in need receiving this, they're, they're going to be glorifying God and thanking God. And that's the point. That's why it's a service to God. This is so that He is glorified in all that we do.
gifts. One thing, if you don't remember anything from today, is that your giving is one of the ways that you glorify God. It's an act of worship. It is a service to Him. It's less to do with the receiving end and more to do with honoring God. Amen? And then we'll end here in verses 13 through 15. He says, By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You see, when the the saints in Jerusalem received this gift from the Corinthian and Macedonian churches, it says that they're going to glorify God because of their submission. And then he says some nice interesting things here. He says this, this submission, he's talking about the gift they're sending up there. Where does it come from? It comes from their confession of the gospel of Christ. The truth is, is that this idea of giving them, collecting this gift and sent to them was proof of their reception of Christ. It was proof of their spiritual maturity. It was proof of their growth and obedience to Christ. It demonstrated that their faith was real and it wasn't just mere words. Some of us, that's what our faith looks like. It's just some stuff we, we sprout out of our mouth, but there's nothing behind it. There's no evidence behind it. But he says, you know, when you sit in this gift that comes of your confession of the gospel of Christ, it's evidence that your faith is real and not just mere words. Evidence of their spiritual growth and their maturity. Evidence that God's love surpasses uh, both uh, economic barriers i mean we're talking about jews and gentiles here that are supporting one another it, it, it so economic barriers geographical barriers and even cultural barriers are torn down by the love of god because none of that matters because in christ we're in one family he says that this submission comes from their confession of the gospel of christ they couldn't do this without being saved but it was god's grace working in them and then second, they would glorify God because of the generosity of their contribution for them and for all others. Now, I don't know exactly what it's saying. I don't know if there were others in, the, the, in this one collection that were going to be receiving this gift in, in Jerusalem, if, or if it was just Jerusalem saints, and he's referring to others that are going to come after this. This time we're giving to, the, to those in need in, in Jerusalem, but what if there are others later that have needs in other places? You know, giving isn't a one-time thing. Just like worshiping God isn't a one-time thing. We do that continually. And he says that, and while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing, surpassing grace of God upon you. You see, here's the thing. That they were going to pass on their material blessing to these saints in Jerusalem, but in return, they would pass on spiritual blessing. They could expect to be prayed for. They could expect to have these people lift them up. He says that they're going to long for you. Not only that, they're going to long, they're going to have a desire to see you, to be with you, to have, they're going to have a new relationship with you, this longing that he's talking about, and then they're going to lift you up and pray for you. They gave something material, but they got in return something spiritual. And truthfully, I think the latter carries much more value. Amen? And then finally, Paul ends this chapter. <laughs> Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Fun fact. 
the word thanks here? Anybody want to guess what the Greek word for that is? Charis, the same word that's used for grace elsewhere. It's translated thanks here. It says thanks be to God. This is that word. It's like used for everything. They just kind of, the, the early church commandeered it. And it has a lot of different meanings. I think 170 different times in the New Testament and many, many different meanings. But here it's translated to thanks. He says thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So what is this inexpressible gift that Paul is giving thanks for? It's not the gift to the saints. It's God's grace. He's giving thanks for God's grace, which is everything that God accomplished through His Son. It's salvation. It's a changed heart. It's the very thing that allows us and prompts us to be generous in the first place. Amen? That's the inexpressible gift that God has given to us. So church, as we read this and we see the importance of giving, let's be reminded and continue to be a people that lets God's grace work in us and through us. Let's be a generous people. Not because we feel like we have to, not because I'm telling you to right now, but as a response to what God has done inside of you. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads. Hallelujah. So for everybody that's in here, and certainly for everybody who's listening online, I just want you to know that God loves you more than you can ever imagine. And the truth is, is that when you die, you're going to stand before Him. And I want you to know that you can be certain of how the outcome of that meeting is going to be. You can be certain of what is going to happen to you after you die. Because you have two choices. You can spend the rest of eternity in the presence of God in heaven. Or you can spend eternity in hell. But we make that decision before we ever meet Jesus face to face. The truth is, is that God loves you and he wants more than anything to spend eternity with you. But there's a problem that we all have from the moment we're born. And that's sin. Sin completely separates us from God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And the Bible also says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the truth is, is that if you're honest with yourself, we don't even need the Bible to know that. We all know that we've sinned, that we've failed, that we've messed up. But the good news is, is that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay that penalty that you owed. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Nothing can change that. So God sent His Son to pay that wage for you. And all you have to do is receive that free gift of salvation. All you have to do is put your trust in Jesus Christ. Call Him your Lord and your Savior. So if there's anybody that's listening right now online, or if there's anybody that's in here, is there anybody in here that hasn't received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior that would like to? Anybody in here? Hallelujah. And if you're listening online and you've not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I just want to encourage you. Reach out to me. Reach out in the comments on Facebook or YouTube. Send me an email at, at uh, information at miranda.church. Give me a phone call. Go to our website and send us an email. 
we want to pray with you. We want to help you to walk in what Christ has done for you. So don't, feel, so don't hesitate to reach out. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.